Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk Podcast. I am your host, Kristen Kibblehouse, and today I am bringing you an interview with Ivy Bearmore. She is the technical coordinator for Mar Alliance and as well as the principal investigator for deep water fisheries. We are going to get into the work that Ivy is doing assessing population of big fish as well as her resurrection of the Atlantic Six Guild Shark. We're also going to look at her work with deep water fisheries as well, and then get into her love of data management and science. So sit back and relax. This is going to be a data and information-packed episode, so sit back and relax, and we are going to get right into our interview with Ivy Bearmore. Hello, everyone, to another Gills Talk interview. Today, we have Ivy Barrymore. So welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I think we're just going to kick it off, get right into it. So I just want to get into what your current research and work is focused on. Great. Yes. Um, so I currently am working in the Mesoamerican region. And the Mesoamerican region is defined by the Mesoamerican Barrier Reef in large part. Um, so it's the countries that border that reef from Mexico, Belize, Guatemala, and then to the Bay Islands, which is where I am currently based. And I work for a non-governmental organization or NGO called Mar Alliance. And we work with communities and fishers to understand what we call the big fish. And the big fish population, sharks, rays, also big fin fish like snappers and groupers. And uh, we sneak the turtles in there as well, because why not? <laughs> They're there with all the other big fish. Um, and we study these big fish uh, populations to understand where they're healthy and where they could use a little bit of help. Um, so my role within Mar Alliance is the technical coordinator, which means that I technically coordinate uh, many teams across lots of different countries. So I'm in the Mesoamerican region, but we also have teams in Panama, um, other countries in Central America, and Micronesia, of all places, in the Pacific, and also Cape Verde. So I help to coordinate our research activities. And then my big job is basically data management. So I take all the data that's collected and I make sure that it's housed properly, clean, tight, available for all of the different analyses that we need to do. And then on top of that, I also am the principal investigator for the deep water fisheries um, study in this region, in the Mesoamerican region. And that is... Um, mostly focused on fisheries that are below about 100 meters or 300 feet. Um, and we, I'm studying that because we don't know really anything about the fish, sharks, all the other animals that live in that environment here in, uh, in these countries. It's a lot to do. It is. That's <laughs> a big job. <laughs> that that sounds like a big job, but all that sounds really interesting. You know, the techno coordinator look, looking at deep water fisheries and getting into like all of, gosh, I don't even know where to start. And um, let's get into the, I guess, like the technical court, the coordinator side of things. Um, yes. So you are lo looking at like this really like big group. So just talk about that a little bit. Right. So our team, um, as I mentioned, we, we work in several different countries and all of our teams are based in the countries where we work. So we have a police team, we have a Honduras team, Panama team. So I am sort of the floating person that, that stays uh, sort of constant. So I do go in and, and help physically in, in those um, areas, but I also, um, like I said, I manage the data. So we do these big surveys. Uh, once, uh, in some cases we go once every year, in some cases we can only go every couple of years, 
but we do the same surveys in all of our locations and that allows us to make comparisons that are sort of apples to apples comparisons. So if we have, we go to one area and we say, well, we really didn't see any sharks in this area. Well, does that mean, is that, and it's on its own, that doesn't really tell us anything, but if we can compare that from either year to year or to some another place that's very similar, then that tells us a little bit more about the, that population. So what was it? Is there a marine protected area in that, in that area? Is there fishing um, that's going on? So we can look at all of these different habitats and things like that to understand why there might be more fish, sharks, turtles in one area in comparison to another. So we do three standardized methods. There's uh, the scientific longline, which a lot of shark researchers use. It's a really great method uh, if you need to put tags on sharks, especially satellite tags or, or marking to see where they move, if they stay in one place for a long period of time, if they take big long migrations, because you can get your hands on physically on the sharks and you can put tags on them. But that's not always uh, feasible in some cases. So we also do baited remote underwater videos, so or the BRUVs. Um, this is becoming very, very popular tool. Um, it's great because it's very versatile. It's basically just a frame and you put a GoPro on it with some bait on the end and you throw it in the water for an hour and you wait to see what comes to the camera. So this is what's called a capture-free method. So we don't, it's really great because we can still count the sharks, the rays, the turtles, and the fish, but we don't have to actually physically catch them. So it's a little bit less stressful for the animals, um, but it also means that we can't put tags out. Um, and so it's a good way of measuring abundance and what we call species diversity or the number of species that are there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, uh, it's different from the long line because you see different species and you can't physically mark them. And then the third method that we use is a underwater visual transect uh, or census called, and it's a snorkel transect. So we don't actually use scuba the way that a lot of coral reef scientists do to, to study coral reefs. We snorkel, we stay on the surface. So there are four of us that swim 15 meters apart and we swim for a kilometer. And we basically count and, and estimate the size of everything that we see as we swim along. And believe it or not, it only takes, on a good day, it only takes 20, 25 minutes to swim a kilometer with four people. And then we can use that um, information to basically, um, that small little plot that we swam, then we can kind of extrapolate out the, the numbers that we see from there. So the three methods are great because like, as I mentioned with the brubs, we see different animals with the brubs than we do with the long line. And it's the same with the transects. Um, so when we're swimming along, it's really great for things like nurse sharks, which like to hang out and not really move during the day. So you can swim right over them. They, they'll just keep sleeping because they're nocturnal. It's also really good for turtles and stingrays, but it's not so great for the big, bigger sharks that are active during the day because they see you coming a mile away and they leave. So we don't see them as well. <laughs> Three super interesting methods. So I want to get into long lining first. Mm -hmm for that. So when you're looking at long lining, are you specifically, I know you said that this is where you, you are typically looking at like those sharks and larger fish. Um, so that is then something that when you do that type of, of method, is that what you are specifically going after? I know sometimes like bycatch does happen. So I'm assuming then like you utilize that, that opportunity as well. Exactly. So we do our very best to minimize the, the bycatch. Um, and in most cases we have a specific goal in mind when we're doing our long line. So it's not just really nearly throwing out a line just because we can. Mm -hmm. um, in some areas, we, um, we continue with the long line because it is a long-term uh, method. And because it's been going on either annually or every few years for a long period of time, it's very good for looking at the sort of the ways that the population can kind of go up and down and up and down at the time. 
fish and sharks are notoriously difficult to see and they move around a lot. So it's, um, you can go to the same place in one year and, and catch a lot and you can go to the same place the next year and you won't see so many. So it's important to continue to do those surveys year after year after year, just to make sure it wasn't some funny one-off. Everybody was at the buffet that year and you didn't see them. Or sometimes in our case, what happens a lot is that the weather is no good. So we go at the same time, but we can't get to our good spots because the wind is blowing so hard that we can't actually set the line. But in uh, the case, of, for instance, at Lighthouse Reef, which is in Belize, we go every year and we set the, the scientific long line because it gives a very good indication of the trend. So we don't look at necessarily from one year to the next because that doesn't tell us much. But over time, if that trend is going down or if that trend is going up then, or if it's stable, which is great, then that tells us a lot about the population. And as far as bycatch, what we do to minimize the bycatch, especially with the fish, because we don't really want to be catching groupers and snappers as well with the line. Um, these are big hooks. They first, so the first thing that we do to try to minimize the other things that are caught other than sharks is to use very, very big hooks. So smaller fish um, aren't usually going to go for that. Hooks are pretty good at selecting for um, the size of fish that they're good for their mouth. So we are going for the, for the bigger animals with the sharks. And then we also set off of the reef so it doesn't actually hang down onto the bottom, which is where the fish hang out. So the fish aren't going to come out over the deep blue sea to come and bite this. They stay pretty much on their little patch of reef where they are. Mm -hmm. um, and then we do do so, uh, some sets that are closer to the bottom, but they tend to be over um, sand. So for instance, if we're going to try to catch um, the nurse sharks, which are on the bottom, that's when we would do those sets. And if we do sometimes catch rays as well when we set on the bottom, we make sure that we handle them uh, very carefully. We wrap a, a towel around the, the spine so that nobody gets injured. And we cut the hook so that we don't have to, um, uh, to pull it back out. So we just cut the barb off the hook and it comes out very easily. Mm -hmm. And the same thing we do with the sharks as well. Mm -hmm. So then what type of sharks then are you targeting on those then? Whatever will come. <laughs> because they're, they are um, anchored to the reef and, and they float out over deeper water. So they do target the reef sharks. Mm -hmm. And when we say reef sharks or reef associated sharks in this region where I am in the Caribbean, um, those are mostly Caribbean reef sharks. Yeah. And um, then the other, the other reef shark, so to speak, is the nurse shark. So we catch mostly Caribbean reef sharks and nurse sharks. But um, what you see is that over time, so the more, the, the species that are more abundant, the ones that you see more are more abundant on your catches. So we mostly catch the ones that are around, but we do also get the other rarer species. And those are um, really interesting to see as well. So there, um, occasionally we get great hammerhead sharks, uh, silky sharks, which are uh, more considered uh, what we call pelagic, which means that they stay at sea. They don't really come to the reefs, but they can't resist a good baited hook occasionally. <laughs> um, lemon sharks are, um, lemon sharks are not as abundant in the Caribbean as they once were. Um, and they're not as abundant as the Caribbean reef sharks, but if they are um, in the area, then we also um, catch and tag those. And um, shark, uh, the, the Caribbean shark sharks occasionally, they have, um, they're kind of like the chihuahua of the shark world. They have a lot of personality and they, are, they see, they're not a very big shark. They only get to be about um, four feet long mm -hmm. uh, total. They're called a small coastal shark, but they never saw a hook that they thought they could tackle. Uh, so these little sharks will, will come right after those big hooks. But again, these are, um, these are the more rare species, um, so we don't catch them quite as often as the other ones. So we can't, with the rare species, you don't get as good of an estimate of, say, um, 
trends over time because you might catch two one year and then go a couple of years without catching any. So the main, um, the main, the, the more um, abundant species are the Caribbean ruby sharks and the nurse sharks. I love how you talked about the um, the Caribbean sharp noses being this little bit of a chihuahua. I remember back to like my college days, we're doing long lining work off of South Carolina. We would catch Atlantic sharp nose and they would be much smaller because they were in, in inside of the bay, maybe a foot in, in a half max. And they were always just like the most like wiggly little things. And I was just like, I'm trying to get you off. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I love it that they just, they have the same type yep, of everywhere. <laughs> reputation down there but going back and then into the bruvs um i'm interested to see then what is the favorite thing you've been able to capture on a bruv the hammerhead sharks they're so great yes um hammerheads um are they are becoming they're they're an endangered species first of all um well the the great hammers they're multiple they're more than one species the great hammerhead sharks are the ones they get very big and they're the ones that tend to be closer to shore um there's also the scalloped hammerhead shark but they spend most of their time either they go down to really deep depths and they come up to the surface and so the scalloped hammerhead sharks spend a lot more of their time kind of in the open ocean we were very surprised once um just a camera was set down it was in a very nice pretty area and then just out of nowhere this mouth came with a giant fin and grabbed the bait and, and moved the whole camera around and then shook it and, and, and left. So it's always exciting. They're such a, they're really beautiful animals. They're, they are, um, unfortunately, they're, they're becoming more and more rare to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always really exciting to see a hammerhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, how, how lucky that you were able, you know, to be able to capture that type of thing on yeah. a, a bruv and being able, you know, not to really mess around with their habitat or stress them out. You know, if you're like diving with them or something like that is as well. So, and then I also am interested in, I have a question about their, when doing your transect. So one, that's a long time to swim, um, yes. I, you know, at, at one time. And then, you know, you're writing down all of these species, like how do you remember or even know, remember how to like identify everything as you're swimming. It's not like you can have like a field log and as you're swimming, like flip through quickly, like to figure out what species that is. Are you taking like photos or, or videos you can go back and reference when you're back, like inside of like your home or your lab? That's a great question. And actually it's one of the reasons why it's so great working with fishers because they are excellent at spotting the things that we might not spot right away. So when we do our snorkel transects, I mentioned that we are four of us. And so we're equally spaced and we swim essentially in a straight line. Sometimes if we have to follow the reef, it wiggles a little bit. But we're swimming and we, we um, have our, our sight range overlaps, but, but um, essentially you're 7.5 meters to the left and 7.5 meters to the right, and you're swimming and looking down and counting. So no, we don't, we don't keep a, um, a catalog or take, we have, sometimes we'll t- take a camera but um, we maintain this, the, the speed of the, of the transect. We don't, unless we see something that necessarily needs a little bit more identification, we usually don't really stop. We continue to swim continue, uh, continuously. So the main way to remember all of those is just practice, practice, practice. It's um, pattern recognition. We do a lot of training. And like I mentioned, the fishermen that we, the fishers that we work with, they're just so good at spotting those, especially the ones that work in the, um, that do free diving. And 
they teach us a lot about how to recognize those patterns and how to um, to find those, especially the turtles, because they're very good at blending in to the reef. They have the, the spotted shells. So um, it is, it's just a lot of it's pattern recognition and you get better at it as you go. And then the other thing that we do is we actually have a list um, of species. So we, we don't count the, the, the um, herbivores. We count what are called piscivorous fishes, which are fish that eat other fish that grow to be at least a meter long. So these are the big fish. We start, we were counting some of the um, other smaller fish before, like the jacks, but um, a lot of them are in schools. So you might have like a hundred, hundred bar jacks that swim by all of a sudden and you're like, ah! <laughs> and trying to get an estimate of the size as they go by can be, um, it's pretty difficult. So um, we've restricted our, our um, list to just be the ones that are the, the big fish eating fish, sharks, rays, and turtles. And it does help quite a lot. And after you do a few of them, you really start to recognize, especially the habitats where you might look a little bit more closely uh, for um, a fish. And the groupers are nice because they tend to be territorial. So when you're swimming over, they're like, who is that? So a lot of times they'll come out to, to see who's going out to, to who's swimming over there their little patch of root. So it, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of practice, it's a lot of work, but over time your brain just starts to find those patterns and starts to see those spots or those stripes of the, of the fish. And in the beginning, what we do also to help with the training, we watch a lot of videos, we use a lot of books, and a lot of what you can do is if you see something and you're like, ah, it's a grouper, but I can't remember, it's got a bar, so then you're, you're, you have a, a slate of waterproof paper, you write down what you see, how far away it is from your line and, and the size of it. And if you just can't, can't work it out, you can't get it out of your brain what that species is, write down a little note. And then when we get to the boat, we actually will open up the book and go through and figure out which, what that species was. It's one big like coral reef puzzle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, what like an interesting way to be able, you know, because like I said, you're at the surface too. So it also limits you to be able, yes, you can dive down in a snorkel, but you're very limited to that exactly. as as well. So it's such an interesting way to be able to do those those transects, being able just to be right at the, the surface is yes. what's like what's like the depth of that then that you're looking down at. It does vary a little bit. So on our the the four reef habitats uh, of some areas, you'll have the sort of shallow over the sand, and then you have the, the actual reef head, and then it, then it drops down into the deep. So what we do is we met we start we start that transect on the deepest part where you can clearly see the bottom on your entire transect. So if it's too murky, um, you can't see the bottom, you can't clearly make out the fish, then we we basically will just shift it in a little bit so that everybody is, um, has good visibility. And in some cases, it might be that one person's at about six or eight feet deep, and then the, the deepest person is at more like 40 to 50 feet deep. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's okay. where we put the, um, the ones who are best at free diving <laughs> because they're, they're allowed, they can then swim down and get a closer look at whatever the, because um, sometimes you see it, you say, I know that's a grouper, but I can't really tell. I can't see the, the tail. And so you dive down a little bit closer and get a better idea of what the size is, and you can see their, their markings a little bit better. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for that. And then to go into the next part of your job, yes. <laughs> going into the deep 
water fisher, um, fisheries, excuse me for that. Um, and I know this kind of maybe, well, I should say, I'm going to assume this goes into what your master's work was on. Cause I was reading that you did things on the deep water angel shark as well. So is this a tie into your master's work? Or is this something like completely separate? It is separate in that um, it's not actually directly related. It's a different fishery. Um, it was a, I, as you mentioned, that was for my, for my master's degree. And that was actually worked with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration or NOAA at the, before I started my master's as a, um, worked as a technician there. And so I was really lucky that I was able to take the data that I had collected as a technician and turn it into essentially a master's degree. And so I've always had a, an interest in deep water fisheries and sharks. And so when I um, transitioned into Mar Alliance, it was um, kind of a natural progression. So it's linked in the way that that's, that's kind of always been in the back of my mind. And um, I was really lucky that my boss, our executive director, Dr. Rachel Graham was like, I think that you might be interested in these deep water fisheries here because nobody knows anything about them. And she said, and I've been doing some, you know, some preliminary work into this and trying to figure out what, what's being caught, but we just don't have the time. So let's see what we can do. Let's see what we can find out. And in the beginning, we started trying really just to look at the sharks, um, mostly because we just we really have no idea what sharks are in the deep water here. And so we um, got a little grant from the Save Our Seas Foundation and started really looking into the, the deep water sharks. What happens is that when you're trying to catch deep water sharks, you actually catch a lot of fish. And um, you catch, there are a lot more fish in the deep sea than there are sharks. And the deep sea sharks in a lot of cases are very, very deep. And so it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to get down to those depths. And so in the meantime, we're catching um, these fish and we're thinking like, well, what is this fish? And so, what is this species? And I wonder how long it lives. We know from an, a lot of the other fisheries uh, in the world that deep water fish and sharks, especially, and especially the deep water groupers, they live for a very long time. And they also tend to grow pretty slowly. When, so when you look at a deep water snapper, um, such as a queen snapper versus um, a shallow water snapper, like a yellowtail snapper. The yellowtail snapper might start reproducing after three or four years, whereas the queen snapper could take 15 to 20 years. But we don't really know, could take longer than that. The, the famous case of the orange ruffy in New Zealand, those fish live for 100 years or more, and they don't start reproducing until they're past 30, 50 years old. So when you have a fish that's as older than your grandmother and as starts reproducing at an age older than you, it's probably not a great idea to be eating these fish or to be removing them in really big numbers. But we don't really know how, um, if the same thing applies to the fish that are here. So um, just started, we're catching these sharks and in taxing them and letting them go. And in the meantime, we're catching these fish and we realized we don't know anything about them as well. So that's how the, the sort of deep water fishery project evolved. And so now um, a lot of what I'm looking at is just really basic, Kind of information like where what species are there where are they what depths are they at and then we're delving deeper into life history how old are they when are they reproducing where are they reproducing and in the meantime of course my first love is the deep water sharks but we're really digging into the the fishery part of the of the project now mm -hmm. so what species are you finding <laughs> we um the, the fish species and the, the fish species that are especially targeted by the fishers are the silk snapper, which the um, just about everybody calls yellow eye because they're pink fish, that bright yellow eye, um, and the black fin snapper, which look exactly the same, except they've got a big black splotch on their fin. And um, so those are kind of the shallowest, the easiest to catch. They're at about a 
um, 150 to 200 feet, they, they start out and then they go even deeper than that. And then after that, you get into the Christopomoides, which most likely is um, the, the cardinal snapper, but may be a winchman. We're not, again, like I said, when we're catching these fish, we don't really know what they are. So we're still, even for a species that is actually relatively commonly captured here in this region and also in the US deepwater fisheries, we still don't actually know exactly which species it is. Um, and there's also, as I mentioned, the queen snapper. This is a beautiful bread fish. It gets to be almost a meter long or three, three, three and a half feet long. Bright red, it has big red eyes. It's, it's long and, and thin and it has this really long trailing ends on its, um, on its caught up in the tail. And it's a, it's a beautiful fish and, um, and it's uh, highly sought. But again, we don't really know many things about them. For the sharks, we actually were able to describe a new species or, or re resurrect a species based on some of the work that we did here at, in Belize, and that is the Atlantic six-gill shark. So we, the Atlantic six-gill six shark, until 2019, we assumed was um, the big-eye six-gill shark, Hexanchus nakamurai, which um, was assumed to occur worldwide. And this is another, it's a small shark. It's, um, it only gets to be a little bit less than six feet long. And as the name implies, it has six gill slits on the side. Most sharks have five and they're very big and they're, they're called the big eye six gill because they have these very big eyes. There's another species of six gill that gets very, very big called the gluttonous six gill shark. Mm -hmm. um, but this one is the, is the diminutive small, smaller one. And so with colleagues in, in the US, um, I, I sent them some of our fin clips the, from the sharks that we were catching, and then they combined it with the fin clips they had collected in the Gulf of Mexico and the Bahamas. And um, so led by Dr. Uh, Toby Daly-Ingle, mm -hmm. she um, was able to find that this actually was not the big eye six-bill shark, it was its own species. So we were able to go back to the original name that was given to it by Springer way back in the, I think it was the, oh gosh, 50s or 60s, <laughs> which was the, to rename it the Hexanglus vitulus. So that was actually the original name that was given to it, and we were able to find that that was the, the correct designation. Mm -hmm. How amazing is that? You know, just yeah. doing like a project like this, and you are re refinding sharks that we thought were extinct, which is so fun and so interesting too. You know, being able like to figure all that out and being able to really like learn about our deep oceans. But so you're learning about these species, if it's sharks, if it's fish, but like, how are we getting those samples? How are we getting to those steps? I know that you're not personally going down in a submersible and doing it. So <laughs> <laughs> I wish that would be fun. <laughs> yes. Um, so we actually are doing two, well, two fishery, what we call fishery independent surveys, which is, which means that we go out and it's a scientific survey that is independent from the fishery itself. And, but I mimic the, the fishery in my, my gear and my method. So I use um, a vertical long line that is sort of similar in the idea of our, the, the big shark long line. The shark long line um, on the surface, the shallow one is, is horizontal. So it's actually um, floats on the surface in a, in a line that's parallel to the surface. A vertical long line sits upright up and down. And so we put a little weight at the bottom. And then in my case, we use five hooks and uh, send it down to the bottom and then put a little surface marker buoy at the top. And so it hangs vertically in the, um, in the water column and the sinker and then the five hooks set up. And that's how we, um, we, we fish for them. Mm -hmm. 
um, because we are working on small boats and a lot of, a lot of cases I'm working with, with fishermen to deck these surveys, um, most of the time we're working on boats that are about 25 feet long. And so we can't bring big winches or you know, hydraulics or anything like that. We can't be like the big platforms like Pushinex where you, you go out and you have all of the gear that you, you could possibly need um, in order to haul these things up from the deep sea. So we're actually throwing these out and pulling them up by hand. Wow. Yeah. And so we have some that are a little bit more geared toward the sharks and we have uh, with, with the bigger hooks, but for the most part, we use, we use pretty small hooks and we set our gear between about hundred meters and we've gone down to 650 meters with our hand deployed lines. What I, I, I've forgotten sometimes and what I've lost sight of is I'm a lot of cases I was putting down, trying to put down bigger hooks to catch sharks in these deep waters. But actually most of the sharks in the deep sea, other than with a few notable exceptions, like the bluntly six gill sharks, they're actually all pretty tiny. Mm -hmm. um, the little um, dogfishes, they only get to be about two or three feet long. As I mentioned, the, you know, the Atlantic six gill shark, it gets to be maybe six feet long. So these are not, these are not giant sharks. So using small, smaller hooks actually works pretty well for catching them as well. Um, the second method that I use is a camera. So just like the surface bruvs, I have a, a specially designed deep water bruv. And, and again, if we put it down on a line and we haul it up by hand, so it has to be super lightweight. And we have a special housing and the same thing with the GoPro in there with the housing on it and two lights on either end. There are dive lights that are also in a, a canister that can withstand the pressure because there's a lot, when you get down to depth, there's a lot of pressure. So we have to have specialized canisters for those. And then we have another little tripod that we can take off the bait arm and unscrew something and then it's, it's a tripod that folds up. So I can stick, stick that in my suitcase and go off to some place, unfold it, put the thing back on and then throw it back in the ocean again. Mm -hmm. So we've had some pretty good success with that camera as well, getting down to see what the bottom looks like because you can catch something that you don't really know, it's, don't really know what's down there. You don't know what the, um, the things that they might be eating. Is it sand? Is it mud? Is it rock? You know, all those things that we can find out from, from sitting down a camera. And um, so we found some really fun, interesting things with the camera as well. And then the third thing that I do is I actually um, work with fishermen to sample fish. So in a lot of cases, I'm trying to determine how old a fish is. In order, in order to determine how old a fish is, you have to look at their ear bones or the otoliths. Um, so you need the fish. And so in some cases, in order to get the numbers that I need, I will um, go and work with fishermen to, to buy fish from them. Mm -hmm. It's a really big collaborative effort, isn't it? It is. Yes. All the way around. Um, for sure. But I think with like with everything that you do and being able to, you know, if it is the deep water fish, if it is looking at fisheries, um, you know, on both sides of things, is this really like was this your end game when you were going into this and you were going for your master's? Or was this something that, you know, you like naturally like fell in love with as you were gaining more experience in your early career? I did not have an end game. <laughs> so yeah, the um, we I can't say that I necessarily had a, you know at the end of the day. I want to work in Honduras on deep water fisheries. Um, I knew that I really enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed the the data collection. I, I enjoyed learning about things that we don't we haven't learned about before. What I found as I my career progressed is that. Oddly enough, you know, when you're younger and you think about marine biology, you, a lot of in a lot of cases you think like, oh, we're gonna get on the boat, we're gonna scuba dive, we're gonna see sharks, and we're gonna, you know, put tags on sharks, it's gonna be great. But what I found 
is that I actually really enjoy digging into the data a lot as well. Um, I still enjoy the field work, but you know, it, really getting in and, and like letting the, having the numbers talk to you and, and tell a story. I know it's silly, but it's the, it's the thing that I really <laughs> like, oh, you're a scientist and you enjoy science. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, the data analysis bit of it is um, something that really hooked me. And so that's why I really enjoy my current role because I get to do a lot of, of both of that, the, the data management and digging into the numbers and, and finding patterns and things like that, but, but also um, with the field work mixed in as well. Is there been like a piece of data that you have analyzed that have like shocked you with the results or anything like that? Um, uh, there have definitely been uh, instances where I sort of had, you're not supposed to go in with preconceived notions, but you know, when you observe things, you kind of think this is the way that it's going to go. Um, you know, when I run this, it's definitely, you're definitely going to see a difference when I when you run these, these tests. And um, in a lot of cases, the, the data just don't play out the way that you really think. That they're going to. I can't think of a like a really specific instance. Well, in my deep water fisheries, I really thought that I was going to see. A, when you look at it, it seems like the fish are bigger when you go deeper. So for one species, like when you're fishing shallower, you're going to catch smaller fish, and then when you get deeper, they're going to be bigger. And you can see that a little bit. But actually, what I've been finding is that it doesn't actually play out statistically the way that I thought that it was going to. Hmm. Yeah. That's just a re one I can think of recently where I was, you know, like, hmm, I, I'd almost already written that in my head exactly how that relationship was going to be. So now I have to rethink about how that, um, how that relationship actually works. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that when you are trying to, when you're doing the deep water fish and you are trying, you know, to figure out like age, growth, reproduction, is there like a fish that is like, your white whale that you haven't figured out something about yet that you're like, oh, like if I could just have like this thing that I can like figure out, like your day will be made, your year. Um, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I am currently um, trying to find where the deep water snappers are spawning. And, you know, I, as I mentioned, I'll, or, or, um, the way that we fish them is a vertical long line and we set out three at a time, but it's me in a boat with some, with um, a couple of fishers and um, occasionally other scientists going out and sort of guessing and throwing lines in the water. So in the beginning, you know, we're still, it's a, it's a little bit blind trying to find um, where these areas are. And then I think, you know, I would go back and look at my previous data. I'm like, okay, right. Definitely had spawning snappers in this area. We're going to go back there the same time of year, the same moon phase, we're going to really nail it down and then we don't catch any or we catch them and they're not spawning like they were the last time. So, um, yes, <laughs> all of them. I would also really like, as we mentioned, the, um, the Atlantic six scale shark. I only catch the juveniles. Mm. I haven't, I haven't caught any of the adults and I know that they're around because um, they're actually landed by fisheries. They're the bigger ones are caught by fishers and that we have to have, records of them being landed in Guatemala. So it's probably that I'm not fishing deep enough, but I fish deep and I still haven't caught them. <laughs> not like the joy of science. So you figure out one thing, but then you have like a door that opens to like five other doors that opens up to 10 other doors. And, you know, you just keep being able to answer these questions and we, that, that, that come up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with that, I want to, I don't want to take too much of your time this afternoon. So I'm just going to ask you one more question. Is that okay? Sure. Of course. 
And then just to wrap up our interview and with everything that you have done so far, you know, is there any like advice that you would have given to your younger self or even maybe your current self going through with everything in this role? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, the first one to, to my younger self would have been uh, to take statistics at university. <laughs> my advisor told me to take, well, I could have taken three semesters of statistics or two semesters of calculus to get my undergraduate degree in biology and biological sciences and I said well take two semesters of calculus that's faster <laughs> I have not really used much calculus I've, there's been a, a few times definitely is used in some of the analysis um, so understanding calculus is definitely a benefit and it, it is necessary however every day I use statistics um, and so I had a little bit of catching up to do when I went to graduate school and when I uh, I actually one of the one another piece of advice I have for um, early career scientist is to take some time and work if you can between your undergraduate and if you decide to go to graduate school to to work to get some field experience or laboratory experience whichever to get a feel for how how real life science works before you go straight into graduate school so um, I worked for the um, I had done an internship with the National Fisheries Service as an undergraduate and then I, um, I worked for a few years before I started my master's degree and I actually learned a lot about statistics in that job but I didn't have the foundation in it from my undergraduate. So I would have definitely should have taken statistics as an undergraduate. And then the other um, advice that I have, work between undergraduate and, and grad school, take some time to, because you'll learn a lot about what your strengths and weaknesses are, um, what you don't like to do and what you do like to do, what your brain is good at, what it's not so great at. And um, the other one is to uh, is take literature, English um, writing courses. Yeah. That's the best thing that I ever did. And my, as a high school student, I took um, AP English, which was uh, this is a long time ago. I'm guessing they still have AP English, but it's college, It's basically for college um, credit. And all we did for a semester was just practice writing thesis statements, supporting statements, and conclusion statements. We did that over and over and over again. And now I have no problem whatsoever. And when I went into into my undergraduate. It turns out that a biology degree is a lot of writing. Every upper level graduate or upper level course that you take usually requires about 10,000 words of writing. You have to do research papers. You need to be able to just knock out some words. So if you can take courses or learn more um, about how to write well and succinctly and get your point across doing the thesis statement, that will help you a lot in your career because I use math every day and I write every day. You have to write reports, you have to write grant proposals, you have to write your um, your literature, everything. Everything is writing. So the more comfortable you are with writing, the better you are as a scientist. Actually. Yeah, I will echo everything that you just <laughs> said there. I hear more and more scientists, even our own staff scientists here at the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, Megan, she says that like she's so happy that she took a break between between her, her, her undergrad and master's and even with her master's to her PhD. And she is, you know, she is so happy that she took that break and she preaches that with all of like our, our interns that, that, that come through. And I say that with, for the English side of things, like my scientific communications class that I took in my undergrad is something that like, I still reference the book today that I have <laughs> that exactly. I got. So it definitely like being able to utilize them because, you know, like if you are going into the science realm, it's not even for writing like papers, it's for grants too. Exactly. You know? to do your science, you know, you have to 
obtain money somehow. <laughs> yeah. Shoot. Yeah. And even if you don't think you're, you're going to be a science communicator, take a science communication course because you will have to, you still have to communicate your science, even if it's not necessarily as um, officially your job. You will you need to be able to communicate your science over and over again. Yes, 100%. Well, I want to say thank you so much, Ivy, for coming on today and being able to explain your role in such great detail. Thank you so much. I feel like I feel like such a great understanding of everything now that you you, you do. So, so, so thank you so much for taking your time to- Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. I've always wanted to be on the first point. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.